0: This is the ASE podcast with your moderator, Kevin Pay. This program brought to you by the Committee on Education Technology of the Association for Surgical Education. Embracing the mission of excellence, innovation, and scholarship, the ASC is impacting surgical education globally.
1: Thank you for joining us. My name is Max Gruber. I'm currently a third-year medical student at the Elson S. Floyd College of Medicine in Washington State. First and foremost, I wanna say thank you to ASC for allowing us to guest host. Today, we have an exciting program for you. I'll be speaking to three amazing surgeons from three very different backgrounds, each who bring a unique perspective to the problem that is starting a new medical school in the ever-changing landscape of the COVID-19 pandemic. Before we start, I'd like to introduce you to our esteemed panel. Today we have Dr. Anjali Kumar, Dr. Ellen Hagopian, and Dr. Kim Brown. In an effort not to downplay any of their amazing accolades, I'll let each of them introduce themselves to you personally. Why don't we start with you, Dr. Hagopian?
2: Yes, hi, thank you. Um, Thank you for having me. Um, My name is Ellen Hagopian, and I am an HPV surgeon at Hackensack Meridian School of Medicine where I serve as the inaugural surgery clerkship director in New Jersey.
3: Hi, everyone. I'm Anjali Kumar. I'm a colorectal surgeon from Washington State, and I am the clinical education director for surgery for a new medical school called the Elson S. Floyd College of Medicine of Washington State University.
4: Hi, and uh, again, thanks for having me here. I'm happy to participate. My name is Kim Brown. I'm a surgical oncologist, and I am the Associate Chair of Education for the Department of Surgery and Perioperative Care at the new UT Austin Dell Medical School, and I'm also the uh, Surgery Clerkship Director at, at the same school.
1: Perfect. Thank you so much for being here. I really appreciate it. Um, to start out, what I'm going to do is actually kind of isolate two of you away just to kind of get your opinion. Um, as of right now, new medical schools are undergoing accreditation, and I'm really curious what that process is like, especially as somebody who's helping kickstart a school. Dr. Gopian, could you speak more to it and describe your specific role with accreditation and what special attributes it kind of brings to surgery and you as a surgeon, particularly?
2: Yeah, you know, um, great question. <laughs> We just had our, um, had an accreditation visit um, by the LCME only a few weeks ago. Um, And I think this was the second visit that they had, the LCME had via Zoom. It was quite an experience. Um, So so as, um, you know, I've had, I've actually had a very large role at the medical school from the very beginning. Um, I chaired the phase two, which is the clinical aspect of the curriculum, the phase two subcurricular uh, committee. So um, I had a very active role in the accreditation process and really leading the clerkship directors in their formation and their participation during the visit. Um, um, it was, um, uh, great experience. Um, I think that, you know, we as surgeons are natural leaders. And so it was a very natural role for myself and some of my colleagues, my academic chair, to, you know, participate in the process. And I hope I answered all of your questions. If I didn't, if you could just please repeat them.
1: Yeah, no, that was perfect. I really appreciated that um dr kumar do you have anything to add from your standpoint
3: um, yeah maybe just a little background the lcme is the liaison uh, committee on medical education it's part of the double or the american uh, academy of medical colleges and they award new medical schools several series of statuses and the first is preliminary and then you move to um, provisional and then you move to full and usually these site visits are held in person um, when members of their committee come and you sit in the big conference room and you face them and you introduce themselves to you and vice versa and then they ask some pointed questions and as a team you work together to figure out who the best uh, person is Mm -hmm. to answer that question Um, Usually, they're trying to uncover some uh, spots that might need a little bit more attention or clarification from a very gigantic document that they have called the DCI, the Data Collection Instrument. Um, A ton of work goes into that, just like it's unbelievable. Um, And I think one of the things that I felt Uh, good about as a surgeon, having gone through um, more than one oral board examination with uh, multiple specialties, uh, is just that practice of communication to be really pithy and clear and to foreshadow. So I felt good about that um, aspect of it. And also the practice that our dean, Dr. John Tomkowiak, uh, kind of um, scheduled for us to do in advance of the visit. And now that we've moved to this virtual format, you know we've been getting a lot of coaching from a communications expert as to how to portray yourself well, virtually to the to the creditors, and it it just makes me think about what our students are also going to be going through with virtual interviews this year and residency uh, programs, mock orals, or even oral boards that are going to be taken on a virtual format. So it's just a, it's a new landscape and a new culture.
1: And if I may ask a question, do you think that that transition to a virtual format will lend credence to better surgeons in the future, just in terms of communication, or do you think it will be a hindrance?
3: Well, we are moving to more and more telemedicine um, in the in the light of the pandemic, and I think that will be a, a something that does last after the the pandemic has resolved Um, so i think that these skills are ones that we're all working on it's called a practice for a reason so definitely
2: if i may chime in um you know when when we pulled our students i think it was march 15th or something like that know we quickly built many um, online electives for our students and when prior to coming back on June 22nd (laughs) we we prepared the students by developing um, online virtual um, courses one of which was a required telemedicine as Dr. Kumar is referred to um, but we also, we also created some very robust curricula that was presented in a very different way, you know? Um, in surgery, we teach by doing, seeing, doing, feeling, smelling, etc. And in the virtual format, it was so cognitively based. and. You know, you know, running running a, a, a summative OSCE virtually is quite challenging, especially when you have a skill station. But what I think it did was because we, because obviously there's a difference between telemedicine and telesimulation where the student has to verbalize exactly what he or she is doing and how to ask for the information from the SP. But I think what that did, what I'm getting at, is that it makes the student think more about and break down the steps more of what he or she needs to do. Like how do I surgically scrub, you know, and what are the components of it? So it's a, it's a it's not Miller's Pyramid does, right? <laughs> but it's but it's a, a different way of breaking down the components of, of the of that instruction. So so it was really, it's been challenging, and we're still in a partially virtual format now, um, but, it's, but it's giving them different skills that I think are, are going to advantage them in some way. I might not be able to say exactly how right now, but I think it's gonna, I know that I've learned in me as an educator, a tremendous amount um, through all this process. Um, but I'd be interested in hearing what um, Dr. Brown and Dr. Kumar's experience has been through this.
4: Our school took a really, uh, a little bit different approach when we had to pull our students out. Again, it was, I remember March 13th, walking into all of the ORs <laughs> and having to pull the students out of some really interesting cases. And um, what, so we, we were two weeks into our eight-week clerkship and we completed all of the academic components of that clerkship virtually, and they took their shelf exam. And then instead of moving on to our term six, we pivoted and we had our students go into their dedicated step one study time because our students take step one after their clerkship year. So one year of preclinical or pre-clerkship work, second year is clerkships. And I think because of that, we, we did have uh, some virtual curricula that were built including some telemedicine experiences. We also involve them in contact tracing which is an interesting experience as we sort of evolved with uh, the students first experiencing that as as so a meaningful contribution that they can make to our community. And then as they started shifting toward uh, step one study uh, that became not as compelling of a of an occupation for their time. Um, and we were able then to bring the students back into the clinical environment after they had most of them had taken their their step one and the, the difference in that i think is trying to shift in their minds into a very focused time period of their medical education in the context of all of these distractions and uncertainty and what i think we don't appreciate is the the loss that they had of this this certainty of where their lives are going and what to expect and so suddenly everything from whether they could complete medical school in four years, um, you know, to are they safe? Is their family safe uh, came into question. So to their credit, uh, they've done comparable to our prior classes um, and uh, under really significant circumstances. So that, that was our approach. Um, And in terms of the hands-on component, we were not as compelled to have virtual experiences for what we would otherwise do hands-on because we had this other work for them to do. And I will say, as far as the OSCEs go, I totally agree that being able to describe what you're going to do is like a cognitive task analysis and it uncovers a whole different level of understanding, but where we're actually facing challenges in that is training our standardized patients (laughs) to be on the receiving end of that new way of interacting and being able to either convey a response to what the students say they're doing um, or give other information that helps the student move forward with their clinical reasoning. So I have chosen in my OSCEs to focus on on other aspects besides the physical exam just because I don't think that that is a appropriate for a clerkship student who's still learning how to do the physical exam and incorporate it to then ask them to use proxies and, and other things that a, a more experienced clinician would be able to do almost intuitively. Um, so we focus on OSCEs uh, around patient care questions. So taking a call from a nurse um, and the, the counseling and shared decision-making communication. So we just pivoted a little bit.
2: Yeah, that's great. I agree with you. I have to agree with you, Dr. Brown, about the about training of the standardized patients. It has been very challenging to train them in what does tele simulation look like. Um, and so, I completely agree with you. And I just want to add one thing: is that to put things in perspective for our school, our our clerkship students, our inaugural class, started their clerkships in December. <laughs> they had 10 weeks of experience before they were pulled. <laughs> so I love your idea, the idea of taking step one, because we we follow, we followed um, uh, Austin, our, um, our step one is going to be after clinical clerkships too, but we just weren't there. You yeah. couldn't do it at that point.
4: Yeah. Pretty soon all the schools are going to do it, although now with the moving to pass-fail, which I hope we're going to talk about, is how does a new medical school think about that change? That has been uh, a shame for us because our students have done so well on step one that that we're like taking away their <laughs> the one thing when without the reputation of a school that's been around for decades to support them uh, that that little piece is now not going to be there. <laughs> our students are a little stressed
1: about it. Uh, Dr. Hogopian, if I could go back to your point, you said that they started, uh, your clerkship students started back in December, had 10 weeks of experience and then were polled. How do you feel like that will affect them for those students that want to inquire about a possible surgical residency? How do you feel like that will affect them moving forward if they weren't allowed that time in the OR?
2: Yeah, um this is a great question, Max. Um I don't I don't see it as that much of a barrier. Um love to hear what Dr. Kumar and Dr. Brown have to say too, but um our curriculum is a 3 plus 1 so that the students if they meet criteria and they pass everything and all the stars align um, so to speak, they, they can graduate after three years. Um, and it, if they can enter one of the residencies within our system. Um, one thing that we saw was, first off, not one student out of the inaugural class applied for what we call as P3R, that's phase three residency. So they, after three years, graduate go right into residency not one um, applied for surgery and we saw out of a total of 60 students only 14 of them applied um, which was actually a dramatic decrease of the number of students that were planning on doing and so I, I i would say that across the board the students felt unprepared to graduate because of the lack of ex- the lack of exposure and experience. I think at the end of the day for our students who are graduating I think that I think that they will be well prepared and I don't I think that it does depend on if we see another surge right on um, if if we see another surgeon we're not planning on um, pulling them but what will that look like I, I can't anticipate that but I think that where we're at right now I just I don't anticipate that there's going to be any um lapse in skills or any difference that we're going to see I would love to hear what other people have
4: to say so to your clerkship year is your third year is that right
2: yeah great question so our curriculum is in three phases. The first phase one is 15 months and that's our pre-clerkship. Phase two is clerkship and phase two consists of one whole year of the core clerkships and and then an additional so many months of step one, step two, and advanced clinical rotations, which is a total of 20 months. So 15 months plus 20 months takes us to, plus the vacations and stuff, takes us to three years. And then after those three years, it's one whole year is phase three. So, so yeah, it's, it's a little confusing. It's confusing for me even, you know, are my students M1, M2, or M3? <laughs> we refer to our clerkship students um, as M2s, and then once the third class started, we refer to them as M3s. It's very
4: confusing. <laughs> yeah. I I ask that because I feel that there there certainly is a difference in the clinical exposure that the students impacted by COVID had at our school. Um, they ended up only doing six weeks total of of that term that they were pulled from, uh, so that. And then the term six, which would have been the last term of their year, it was also shortened to six weeks and layered on top of the next academic year's term one. So we had at one point, you know, two almost two full clerkships going at the same time, which was incredibly challenging given that we were still experiencing very low clinical volumes with intermittent... um, reductions in the uh, ability to schedule elective cases, depending on how many COVID patients we had in the hospital. Um, I do, uh, I think that because we have that buffer of, of having the clerkships early, that they are gonna be able to make it up. I feel like that there will not ultimately be a difference in their skills for the, for the clerkship students. And the ones who were fourth years and got pulled and went on to graduate I, I do think that on the GME side, we are paying particular attention to their needs. And I suspect that, that with um, the appropriate supervision, they'll catch up and they won't ultimately have um, significant differences.
2: We actually had the advantage of not overlapping and we did. We we shortened our clerkships, Dr. Brown, Dr. Kumar from surgery. Um, was eight weeks and we shortened it to six weeks um we we were able to do that effectively and i don't i don't think that it was um i I don't think it's affected them much to be honest um but we had the point i wanted to make is that we were quite blessed to not overlap clerkship years, that would have been very challenging for us as being a new school. Almost impossible, to be honest. Yeah.
3: Listening to Dr. Brown, Dr. Argogopian talk about the different structures of medical schools, um, you know, makes me think about how varied we really are and what, what kind of settings are we in. Um, and Dr. Brown uh, had put in the, the chat box here, just to understand the context in which these schools were started, pre-existing teaching hospital, new hospital, et cetera. And from our standpoint at Washington State University, we're entirely community-based. We don't have any hospital system and don't plan to that we own or will own. Um, We are working on a practice plan, um, but that's mostly gonna be for ambulatory care. The other unique thing about our university is that we have a clerkship that's a third-year clerkship. It's a 10-month longitudinal integrated clerkship, and that's an all-in student body uh, program. Uh, So what COVID uh, offered to us was really an opportunity in the sense that all of our students had been exposed to at least two-thirds of their overall surgical experience, And so when we converted to a virtual experience for the remaining six weeks of their third year, scheduled third year, each of us in the core disciplines took one week to to design um, a a virtual experience. And so it was helpful that they had been um, in uh, the operating room and taking care of surgical patients because they could hearken back to that. But what we did during that time was to really work on their skills like transitions and hands off of care or role playing through informed consent or calling a consult and really drilled in the one sentence surgical summary things like that that um i think helps them in many ways as an on-ramp to fourth year Um, and we're seeing that played out and we're very lucky in washington state that we were able to allow our students to enter into their fourth year some of their experiences in fourth year have been curtailed in the sense that surgeries were just down all summer, especially at elective surgeries. So what students might've been seeing was simply decreased. Um, Another obstacle that we faced was that students weren't as readily uh, invited into the ambulatory surgery centers that were often privately owned. Um, So that, that definitely decreased their exposure and experiences to those kinds of cases. Other
4: than
3: that, though, what I've heard is that the
1: experience has been
4: robust. There's definitely, oh, <laughs> definitely a challenge when you don't own your own um, hospital, which is the case with us we have a We have a partner. Uh, for for our clinical experience and um, they have, you know, their own rules and, and a lot of stakeholders involved in, in making those rules and it's part of a national health uh, health system. So, you know, some of their um, rules were not even created in our city. Uh, so that definitely presented some unique challenges around, um, around COVID and, and kind of as we're phasing back into something that may
1: day one, one day be normal. I was just gonna chime in really quick. And I know I'm not a part of the panel, so it's it's difficult for me to elaborate like that. But as a third-year medical student, what's interesting to me is, and I have friends who are in fourth years or in second years, and they're going, they're undergoing different parts of their curriculum as well. I find it really interesting that I thought everyone was going through a similar experience, but after hearing all of you discuss how your school is structured, how the curriculum is structured, how your clerkship is structured and what they're going through and just how different it is. And that's very mind blowing to me. I didn't really consider that as a pos- as a possibility. Um, and something that I just really like to move forward on is we've talked about how this affects clerkship and how it affects moving forward for students who are prospective surgical candidates in residency. But how do you feel like this has affected them in how they're going to match? not so much will they match but match is such a cathartic experience it's something that they get to that day we made it all that you can look back on all that work and it's just this big hurrah moment and with that past year they weren't able to celebrate in a physical manner with all of their peers and their classmates and their teachers how do you feel like that affected them
4: i yeah this was this would have been our inaugural classes match day in, in uh, march of 2020 and they Had been a lot of care and thought put into that day, and just kind of watching it unravel as things progressed. Like there were two parts to it. One was it uh, with just the students and their families, and then there was a more public gathering and celebration. And um, and then both of them had to be canceled. So very, very disappointing um, in in many ways, especially for the families that had supported these students through all of their undergraduate and then medical education um and and for the whole community of faculty to celebrate because it really does take a village to to raise a medical student and uh i i uh i think it was a loss their graduation was lost too i'm sure the other yeah, like everyone in the country, um, we did a nice virtual graduation where they all tried to say the Hippocratic Oath together, and and totally unsynced on Zoom. It was a disaster. <laughs> but, live and learn. Oh, I can
3: anyway. imagine.
2: Yeah, we're, we we were fortunate enough that we didn't have we didn't have that experience our inaugural class was the the class that had just started their
4: clerkships
3: and ours are the ones that are just starting our fourth year so we might be dealing with a a virtual match and we'll be looking to to you for a model to follow
4: (laughs) yeah the the process of entering in the match i think as a new medical school is really challenging and Something that, you know, we're in this virtual season, I think what our, our class matched very, very well last year. And I do think it was because they went out and did away rotations and their quality was recognized. And many of the ones uh, in surgical specialties matched in places where they did their away rotations. Um I think that's our biggest challenge this year is that they're not gonna to get to go out and spend a month at different places and show what they can do. And for that, we've been very proactive in, in starting to network on their behalf and identifying um, you know, where, where they might have their top interests and starting to figure out who do we know with these programs that where we can advocate for them. Um, and I'd be interested to hear if there's other strategies that I'm not considering on how, how especially a new medical school can, um, can get their students out there to their highest program that they are capable of uh, succeeding at.
3: For us, um, since our students are in their fourth year and really hardly any of them have been offered the opportunity to, to go on away rotation, um, we were able to partner with uh, the other state-funded university that has a medical school in our state, which is University of Washington, and allow for some of those opportunities to be opened up, and we're so incredibly grateful for that partnership um, because our, because we don't have a hospital. We didn't have any home programs. The other um, way that I've really tried to dig deep and, and go real creative is to just leverage all the contacts and um, talents of our statewide community faculty, and I, I want them to know our students well enough that they could vouch for them, not only in letters of recommendation, but maybe some phone calls and maybe some requests for interviews. I don't know what this year is gonna be like in terms of the virtual interview season, but I figure that personal contacts has always been important in surgery. We're, we're a very small community especially among surgical educators. And um, one way that I've uh, thought of how to do that, because I don't want the the faculty to just randomly say, yeah, I happen to know this student. I want them to really know how their clinical reasoning and decision-making and thought process works. So we started incorporating into our surgical sub-internship and some of our elective rotations in surgery an oral exam at the end of the rotation. And it's all held virtually, um, but the students get to submit three cases that they've they've had exposure to in the previous month and pitch them to the faculty. Faculty are paired and they have a chance to to look at them. And then they ask them hypothetical questions based off of the scenario that was given. And it's, it is similar to the oral boards in, in some ways, but we try to make it a little bit more level set for a medical student, so we put the student in the shoes of the intern. If you were the intern, how would you um, uh, handle this situation so that we can really understand their need, their uh, thought process when it comes to calling for help? And, and so that connection, I, I believe, is going to allow our statewide faculty to authentically represent the student to peers that they might have had in their own training journey um, and say hey I can really vouch for the student they're pretty solid in these areas so that's one idea
2: yeah and perhaps even sharing their performance you know in in some in some way um, in their not only their letters of recommendation but from the, the school's data um just a different way of 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 representing your students that sounds like a sounds labor intensive but it sounds like a great a great thing that you do dr kumar
4: is that a summative experience or formative feedback for the students it's both
3: actually so we've got a um summative component that's captured on an assessment form that is really targeted around the entrustable professional activities for entering residency. And there are 13 of them that the AAMC has identified. So that part of it is quantitative. And then the formative piece has been super helpful. We've seen a a real dramatic improvement in the way uh, students have examined month to month to month especially in our core group of surgery hopefuls, which is about a third of our class, and we have a, a class of 60. Um, so it's a big group. Um, and I'm, I'm grateful for this group because we have a major workforce shortage in Washington State um, for, for surgeons. Uh, so I'm hopeful that just being in touch with their peers and also the community will, will allow them to, to think about coming back and serving their state.
4: What a, what a fantastic um, uh, idea. And I'm going to find you after this and get more information. Because <laughs> <laughs> I, I have, you know, when, when I talk to a peer about a student, you know, one of the things I say is if if I'm going to get woken up at two in the morning, this is the person I want calling me because I know they're going to gather the relevant information and they're going to be able to present it and have a plan. Um, and I can trust them. And, to, you know, that's uh, I, I feel like that's the. Core gut surgeon evaluation of a trainee. What are going to do to me at two in the morning? <laughs> right.
3: <laughs> it's helpful
4: to role play that, and
3: you can. I mean, that's where we have to go. You know, creatively, we have to we have to say what what are these communication skills that are very unique to surgeons, and how do we want our students to to embody those in the best way possible? And practice, practice, practice. That's all. It, that's all it is. Um, and if we put their feet to the fire, they do great. They learn so fast. It's unbelievable.
4: And so they do not have any residents in your medical school. They, they work directly with attendings. Correct. Correct.
3: In, in our community settings, for sure. But we have affiliate partners that do have residency training programs. So we're very blessed to, to expose them Because that's a double that's a AMC requirement for a medical school that you have to have your students um, interface with the uh,
4: learners who are
2: in graduate medical education. Right, right. at some important. point. Right. Clarify yeah. that. Yeah, at some point. Yeah, that's a terrific model, Dr. Kumar. Um, we we actually uh, built a similar um, hybrid model so that our students rotate two different sites um within within their uh six-week rotation one site is out in the community where they're paired with a with a community surgeon working one-on-one or two-on-one and then the second with working with residents
1: dr you your uh, your mic dropped out
2: Yes. I muted myself for a moment.
1: Oh,
4: I got zoom. Bingo. <laughs> um,
1: I have a question, which is very personal to me and it kind of touches back on what Dr. Brown was talking about, um, in terms of step one and how in 2022 is transitioning from a score based metric as it is right now. And as it hasn't been before to a pass fail metric. And within the next year, they're going to start masking scores and then, a progressively work towards that pass-fail metric. I'm curious, and since we have a panel of three doctors who are all representing medical schools, which may or may not have a ton of legacy behind their name because they're relatively new, how that's going to affect students and how they present themselves to future re- residencies and becoming possible candidates.
4: Well, I, I started making a few comments about that and I do think that it disproportionately uh, disadvantages the newer medical schools because we are less known um, and our the product that we're delivering is uh, less tested. Um, I think that that there are strategies to overcome that, and I again very biased by our first class of students is that the the, the away rotations um, do a tremendous amount to uh, to help um, mitigate any numeric score that now is not available for a student to stand out uh, based on that. Um, And so that is not a great solution, I'll be honest, because it's really expensive for students to go travel across the country and and do away rotations. Um, That It may disproportionately impact people with families, which we're seeing more and more in our medical students and there are limitations in those resources and how those spots are allocated is not always transparent. So I don't think that I would advocate that as the solution of the future. Um, In my department, because we're a new medical school and kind of put together uh, in in maybe a unique way compared to other academic medical centers, I have uh, emergency medicine, orthopedic surgery, general surgery, residencies and my exposure to emergency medicine residencies they're very uh, structured about how they evaluate students on their clinical rotations including an accountability for how many students you say are in the top third Um, so if you say everybody's in the top third um, that is going to be really clear in your um, in your standardized um, letter of evaluation and so I know that was an effort that has has gotten, um, had started in the American College of Surgeons and I I think that is probably going to be the uh, strongest move going forward is to have a structured, um, more transparent mechanism for the people who know these students best to really attest to their strengths and weaknesses. It is a challenge because no medical school wants their student to go unmatched so it is a conflict of interest to present students' weaknesses. Um, but I think we we are going to have to, though, and it has to be the ones who know them best, um, be able to provide that data in a more transparent fashion.
3: The One of the program directors in our state um, unequivocally said, well, we'll just use step two. We'll just require step two, because that's still numeric, so. I think that you know surgeons are um, often creatures of habit and kind of uh, interested in some old school um, mentalities. And I think combating this pass-fail transition is gonna be hard for some programs that are just, it's just part of the way that they screen. And it's how they bring their number of uh, their vast number of applications down to, you know, a manageable number that they can a- actually have the capacity to interview in a mu- meaningful way. Um, but curious about Dr. Hogopian, Ho- 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 if you've heard anything much about STEP.
2: Yeah. So, you know, our students are of course very concerned um, that. My, I think our inaugural class will still be numeric, but after that um, they'll go to pass-fail. And so of course they're very concerned because they understand that it's been used as as a filter. Um, you know, it's it. this is a problem that we have in GME, right? And it's bigger than just our problem of or our situation of having new medical school is that the we've created a monster right the students apply to hundreds of programs and they feel that you know they've been given a number if they don't have this number of interviews then they're not then they're going to go unmatched and and we've created this process and, and you know, I, don't, I don't know necessarily how to make it better, but um, we just, I, I think that in GME, we need to be able to find a way, and I think this is what Dr. Brown was getting at, to, to, to choose our, our students to interview, et cetera, from this, from this applicant pool. But we need to, it it needs to really start with with the students focusing in on the programs that they're really interested in. And I, I, I hate recounting, oh, when I was a medical student, but when I was a medical student, I went to the nice big green book and paged through the book to look for the programs that interested me the most. And I, of course, had a chart of call, where the residents match that location, academic not, you know, etc. And so this, but the students just apply to almost everywhere, you know, and so we've created this and we need to figure out a way to, to make it better, not only for the students, but also on the side of the program directors. I'd be interested to hear what, um, especially Dr. Brown has to say about this, because this is a, this has really been a, an ongoing problem, um, and I know that you've, you, you're um, in a new medical school, but you were previously a clerkship Director too, so you have a lot of experience.
4: I, I'm, what I'm seeing as a potential positive coming out of COVID is that we are now Doing things that seemed very taboo in the in the pre-COVID era, which is we're reaching out to people who are interested in our program. We're having Zoom calls. Um, I don't think that book really exists in a meaningful format anymore. I had the same one. I remember mine being read, but you know, even if you know that they have six residents per year, and there's one a year that goes into research, and their last, you know. You don't understand. You don't know the culture, and you really have to, in you know, before now, go and see it to um, uh, to get a sense for is this is this a program where the residents go and support each other? You know, it, has anyone had a baby in this program, and how were they treated, or other relevant questions? And so these Zoom virtual meet and greets, I actually think, will be something that's going to persist after we're back interviewing in real life because that can help the students decide is it worth spending the money to click on that program to apply to it um, or if i get it interviewed you know i can't afford 50 interviews or however many the deans tell them to go on um you know i have now something more tangible to make that decision on um and that being said though the idea of having to make that decision entirely virtually is terrifying from both sides is that is someone's committing 5 years of their life or we're committing 5 years of our lives <laughs> um, at the risk of it not being a good match so clearly there's just tremendous opportunity to develop better assessment tools for uh, how good of a fit a candidate would be in a particular position and there's plenty of experience in industry people pick CEOs and, and lots more high stakes decisions. And I think that's where we're going to grow from this is, is how to learn from what's being done in other contexts.
1: Perfect. That was very insightful. I really appreciated hearing that, especially as a medical student who's going through that process myself. That was very interesting. Um, I just want to thank you all so much for being a part of the panel today and providing your own insight and your uh, own unique experiences and uh, how med- medical education is shaping, how it's turning out, and how curriculum is playing a major role in that process. Um, does anybody have any final points to add? Nope. Okay, perfect. Well, thank you very much, and thank you for being a part of this.
3: Thank you very thank
2: much you. for having us. Yes, thank you for the opportunity.
0: And that wraps up another edition of the ASE podcast brought to you by the Committee on Education Technology, the Association for Surgical Education. You can check out many great resources on the ASE website at www.surgicaleducation.com. And be sure to subscribe to our podcast series where we discuss pressing issues in surgical education. We invite you to join ASE and get involved and wish you success in your pursuit of surgical education excellence.